Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. This is Matt Watson, and this week I'm joined by Sean Corp. How's it going, Sean? Pretty good. How about yourself, Matt? Pretty good. Uh, I'm excited to hear the latest news about Andre Drummond. Uh, all along, he was always considered a long shot to, to make Team USA's uh, final roster uh, to go to Spain for the World Cup. But as it turns out, Coach K, he decided to keep all of his big men. It wasn't a matter of Drummond or Cousins or Plumley. Coach K decided to bring them all. I think that was a, a pretty big surprise, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I was definitely surprised. I mean, I think it's the right call. It's what I would have done. Leaving aside, you know, what I think about Drummond, I always thought it made sense to have a, an ample supply of big men just because you don't want to get caught short on those. But, I mean, all indications were that he was going to cut one, maybe two of the big guys with uh, Plumley and Drummond being, you know, the most likely candidates. So I went to bed thinking after the last, uh, after the game against uh, the second to last exhibition game that he would certainly be cut in the morning. And uh, I think I got a bunch of Twitter notifications at like 2.30 in the morning waking <laughs> me up that he actually made the team. Yeah, I, I was actually uh, I was in Las Vegas uh, for a work trip. And so it was about midnight Vegas time, so it must have been about 3 a.m. Eastern when they actually made the announcement. Um, Team USA, uh, they decided to cut Damian Lillard instead and keeping Derrick Rose. I thought that was a pretty surprising decision uh, just because of – the whole injury history with Derrick Rose and there's reports of knee soreness and things like that. But obviously they felt, Hey, you know, just like you having a, an extra big man, is a little bit more important than having another, another point guard. Um, but yeah, I don't think Pistons fans will be complaining. It gives us one more thing to, to help pass the time before, uh, before the preseason begins. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess my next thought would be, what is his role? Does he actually have a role, or is he really just insurance? Well, I think we can look a little bit to how he actually did on on Tuesday uh, against Slovenia. USA played their final exhibition game against Slovenia. Um, Drummond only got off the bench for seven minutes, uh, but that's five more minutes than Plumlee did. So I think he's going to settle into that role of, of being – um, you know, I think Cousins is the clear-cut guy ahead of him, um, and, and Anthony Davis is the clear-cut guy above above everybody, uh, especially in international play. You know, you can put him at center. Uh, so, I I don't know if he'll see much more than you know five to ten minutes a game. But for a guy who just turned 21 years old, uh, who's still a little bit raw, I sh- I just think the entire experience from playing this the, all summer long to actually making the trip to Spain. Uh, practicing, scrimmaging, just the entire experience is going to help him more so than than what actual game time, you know, actual actual minutes in the games will. Uh, that, you know, that's something that we talked about in uh, uh, pr- previous episodes of the podcast. But, no, I'm just extremely enthusiastic that he gets to go along for the ride. And, you know, the, the time that he does actually get onto the court during international play, I, I think is pretty much a bonus at this point. Right. It's almost like a best-case scenario where – he gets the complete experience of being around these elite guys. He's, you know, being coached by a really solid staff. He gets the whole, you know, international competition experience. And if he doesn't really play much, that lessens the likelihood of injury, which, you know, in light of what's happened with Paul George, 
I guess that has to be a consideration, or maybe I'm just sort of morbid. Well, sure, you know, not even just injury, but also just wear and tear, right? Like, it just also, he's going to be playing long minutes for the Pistons. Um, he obviously, he, he had some trouble his, his rookie year with the back, and so just kind of saving overall miles. Uh, you know, they accumulate over time, so, you know, I think it's, a, it, I'm not so much worried about injury uh, in terms of something specific right now, but even just kind of saving that wear and tear for later in, in the season, um, you know, it will certainly benefit him helping him feel a little bit more fresh later on if he's not playing heavy minutes right now. But, but no, I think it's, uh, yeah, like you said, it's pretty much best-case scenario here. I mean, just him having the chance to learn and, and, and keep going against these other big guys, um, you know, both uh, the, the international players and also his own teammates, uh, I, I, there's just going to be a lot of positive things that, that come from that that's going to rub off from that. Right, so just to consider the other side, I guess, Put yourself in Stan Van Gundy's shoes. At the your heart of hearts, would you think that him making this team and going overseas for this tournament is a good development or a bad development? Because you know you have your new offensive system, your new defensive system. Uh, he's not been you know had a stellar track record of coaching so far, he, and he's the linchpin of your team, and he's not going to be around for another month or so. So. Is this a good thing or a bad thing if you're Stan Van Gundy? I I think it's a good thing, you know, and and for a couple of reasons. One, no, he's not going to be around uh, Van Gundy. He's, you know, I guess it's a little bit less time that he's going to have uh, to be exposed to, to Van Gundy's system, um, assuming he would have otherwise been in Detroit working out. But like you said, he hasn't been exposed to very good coaches so far. Uh, in the NBA so I think even just any kind of amount of time that he can spend and be with this team uh, and be with Coach K who's obviously an excellent coach um, and, and all the other coaches that, that with the team uh, you know talking about Jim Boheim, Tom Thibodeau uh, even Monty Williams just being around that level that caliber of coaching and, and all the different tips and all the different um, uh, instructions that he can get from them I think it's just going to help because he's really been he's really been at a disadvantage his his first couple of years in the league uh, with, with the quality of coaches that he's had. So, you know, I, I, I do think there's something to be gained from that, even if it's going to take and, – and let's be honest, like his role in Detroit's offense and, and in Van Gundy's system is going to be far simpler for him than it will be for, say, all of the other wing players and all of the other uh, perimeter players that Van Gundy has, has brought in. Um, his role is basically going to be – um, you know, p- patrolling the play, the paint, uh, you know, running the pick and roll, things like that. And those are going to be things that, that he can continue to refine and, and be doing those things. It's the same types of things that he's going to be expected to do playing for, for USA. Right. I, I definitely agree with you from an offensive perspective, but I think, uh, you know, Drummond has all the tools to be an elite defender. He doesn't have the experience or sort of the, uh, the innate skill, it's something he struggled with so far in his career. So I do think he comes up a little short as far as learning the proper techniques of defense. Although that is, I mean, as far as defensive principles, you can't really do much better than Tom Thibodeau. So, I mean, he might not be learning from Van Gundy, but he's learning from some of the best. So right. uh, his game, it, it can only help his game overall, I think. Right. And in terms of sheer athleticism, 
you know, obviously he's a far bulkier player than a guy like Anthony Davis. But in, in terms of sheer athleticism, they're very similar in that regard. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see if there's anything that he can kind of pick up from his game too, even though, like I said, physically they're very different players. Um, but, but no, I think, I think there's, I, I think, like I said, like I, you know, I'm, I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but I really think that this is just going to be an overall good experience. Right, and m- much like uh, Darko was the human victory cigar in Detroit and it had sort of a negative connotation, I think this could be a, a fun, positive connotation where uh, Drummond will probably get in when the score has far been decided in USA's way, and uh, he's going to be playing against some, some of the second-tier guys from second-tier teams. So I imagine a few uh, highlight reel lobs and dunks coming our way, courtesy of Drummond and uh, some of the good point guards on the USA squad. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, we've seen in his very limited time that he's had so far. The, the, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of at least the the two highlights: one from uh, from the game earlier this week, and one from last week. Um, you know, he, he's only on the court for maybe you know five seven minutes, but he he will make his presence known and. And he does, you know, coming into the game like that with fresh legs and playing against people who don't, who don't necessarily, like, you know, he will be able to make an impact. I just want to see him steal a ball from a point guard and run post to <laughs> That's always my favorite drum and play. <laughs> I like to call that the Dwayne Wade. I, he did, I remember he did that, tw- was it back-to-back possessions against Wade, right? Yep, yep, yeah. same game, back-to-back. It was in an abysmal season that was uh, a highlight for sure. Absolutely. All right, well, you know what? This actually is a good segue. Uh, we'd like to introduce a new segment to the podcast called Ask DBB. Uh, we solicited questions via Twitter and via the website. So we have, uh, you know, we have some Drummond questions. Twitter user at Ordinary Joe asks, what will be the key to improve this team defensively? Will Dre ever become an elite defender slash rim protector like Big Ben? And somewhat relatedly, the underscore Gil uh, sends an email asking, how many years do you think it will take until Drummond can lift this team to be a contender? And uh, I sort of think those things are related. We're not going to, or the Pistons are not going to be a contending team until uh, they are much improved defensively, and a lot of that hinges on uh, Drummond. So what do you think about his defense? I think he obviously has the tools to be an elite defender and to be an elite uh, rim defender, rim protector. And he he is prone to the occasional highlight-worthy block. Uh, You know, when he does something well, you know, it's it's eye-catching like that. And obviously, you know, he's good with his hands. You know, he can steal the ball. I think the one thing, in order for him to to really improve in the paint, it's, you know, we mentioned this before, uh, but it really is a, a team game. And he can't be left on an island, and he can't be um, have a guy come charging at him uncontested right into the lane because that just puts him at a severe disadvantage. Um, so I think the the key this is kind of a cop out. Not only is it just you know the the experience that comes with with playing with a defensive minded coach and, and learning the finer points of of switching and and everything with that. I think the key will be having improved play from from the perimeter as well and having someone who's at least able to slow down you know someone charging at the charging at him with the ball uh before you know i i I, it's just it's all just connected right like the like the best team defenses they basically play on a string and it's really hard to isolate 
uh, it's really hard to isolate or hold one guy accountable when you really need you really need like significant improvement from from the guards up front. Right. I mean, a lot of times last year you saw any sort of combination of Monroe, Drummond, and Smith kind of look at each other and both fuddlement as somebody <laughs> drove the lane unimpeded and. A lot of that had to do with people blowing by Jennings on a constant basis. A lot of it had to do with Monroe and Drummond not communicating well on switches. A lot of it had to do with uh, Smith kind of not being able to put aside his paint defensive uh, roots and play the perimeter adequately. He he got, got caught ball watching a lot and totally lost his man. So a, a lot of that is team defense. Uh, so a lot of it will hinge on, you know, a coach installing a good scheme. And a good scheme is going to go a long way, I think, in uh, players knowing their roles. And once you know your roles, you can get better at executing. I just feel like the big guys in Detroit have no idea what they're supposed to do from play to play because it's been so inconsistent. I mean, I find it almost unfathomable that they could be that clueless themselves. There was just, there was a bad scheme in place with too many people not holding up small ends of their assignments, and it all just adds up to a, a truly horrific defense. So, I mean, basically the Pistons have to shore that up on every single facet, and then, then once that's in place, uh, you can talk about sort of the individual responsibilities that each person has to get better at. Right. And so for, for so for Drummond, I think a lot of that is um, sometimes I think he plays a little small when uh, he's uh, bodied up with somebody. He he kind of lets people push him around because he has such quick hands. I think he knows he can sort of react to their eventual move. But I, I'd like to see him kind of be a little more stout there, and uh, definitely on switches with the pick and roll and things like that. He. Uh, he does not anticipate as well as probably he should, and I think a lot of that comes with experience and good coaching, but that's definitely where I see uh, the biggest improvement coming from him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and let's not forget, he he's three years out of high school, right? Right. Like he's about to enter his third year in the NBA, he had one year in college. So, I mean, we're talking about it. He just turned 21 last month. So... A lot of this stuff, it's 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 really easy to forget just how young he is, and and he just doesn't have the experience that other that other players do. So a lot of this stuff is is just purely natural growth curve. It'll come with him in time, and once all of the other pieces come uh, come together, you know, once the Pistons have an actual cohesive defensive scheme this year, and, and that's Van Gundy's calling card is to have his players extremely prepared. I think it'll really come together this year. And I think that'll get them going in the right direction towards, I'm not going to say they're going to become a contender this year, but that'll get them in the right direction towards actually being able to compete on a, on a regular basis day in and day out. And I really think, I, you know, I've, I've, I, 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 I understand that I sound very overly optimistic, and, but as I've said a handful of times on the podcast before, you know, I'm, I tend to always see the bright side of things this early before the start of the season. But I really think people will be shocked at how much better they are this year 
strictly because of Van Gundy, strictly because of the guys that they brought in. And then all the other guys that are, that are still here, they're going to be put in a position to succeed instead of just put on an island and, and completely confused about what their responsibilities are and what they should be doing. You know, right. I don't think you can really underestimate the impact that Van Gundy will have this year. And kind of related to that, I think if they don't hold up their end of the bargain, whether it's you know Jennings, Smith, Monroe, or Drummond, I think they're you know playing time is at risk because uh, you know the roster has been filled out with some some good players. There's going to be competition, especially at point guard, I think, and uh, you know a lot of the symptoms can be traced back to just how poorly. Jennings guarded the perimeter last year, whether by, you know, not executing or sort of uh, maybe, if I'm being charitable, maybe he was told to play sort of uh, ball hawk aggressive defense where he took a lot of risks that he probably shouldn't have and it ended up allowing his guy blow by. So so a lot of it is, uh, it is definitely in Van Gundy's hands to kind of mold these guys into a, an adequate defense. Although, I will say, going back to the original question, uh, how many years does it take before they become a contender? So obviously it's not this year. Is it two years down the road, three years down the road, five years down the road? I, th- I think it's at least two years down the road, two, two more years from now. I think if we're entering year three of the Van Gundy era, if they're not on the cusp, if they're not one of those rising teams that, that suddenly look like they might be able to break through, then I think it will be a, a severe disappointment. However the Greg Monroe situation falls out, if they have money to spend next year or if they end up investing that money in Monroe um, and, and as Van Gundy continues to mold the team completely to his, his uh, schemes... I think I think in year three of the Van Gundy era is when they'll be ready to take that next step. And that, by then, you'll have Drummond will be right in the prime of his career. He turned 21 this summer, so we're talking about him being uh, 24 years old. That's still a little bit on the young side, but he'll have enough, you know, NBA years behind him. You know, I I, I really think it. I don't think it's that far off. I think they'll continue to make significant progress each and every year. Right. So looking at Van Gundy's sort of coaching history, I think probably. Uh, his his squad in Detroit is more analogous to what he started with in Miami as far as having to build it up. Uh, he went 42 and 40 his first year. He went 59 and 23 in year two. Now, a lot of that was Dwayne Wade was looked at as an instant superstar. Uh, other players wanted to play with him. Pat Riley was part of the organization. So it was kind of a place people wanted to go and they were able to get Shaq, and kind of build that championship contender. Uh, when Van Gundy left for Orlando, he was 52-30 and 30 his first year. Obviously, he had a much better cast to begin with. But in year two, he also went 59-23. and 23. Year three, 59-23 and 23 again. And he actually went to the finals in year two. Now, I think... To have those expectations for Detroit are unreasonable because I think Drummond's going to be, you know, a star player, maybe even a superstar player, but he he's not the kind of player you build a team around like a Dwayne Wade, where he's the offensive focal point and you kind of get complementary pieces 
and it it sort of makes sense to the whole NBA player you know pool that this is this can be a real championship contender. I think uh, Drummond's a little bit more like Dwight Howard, uh, and so maybe I'd say year three something in the 50 plus wins maybe high 50 wins would be sort of what the van gundy uh contending model would would hopefully be like yeah i i do agree i i well i certainly agree that he's a lot like dwight howard um in fact so many people compare drummond to howard and van gundy in Detroit, as if they're you know he's trying to, to to make them into the the next version of the Magic. So I, like that's been said so many times, it's almost cliche. But I do think that's true to a certain respect. In that that year that Van Gundy brought the the Magic to the finals, Howard was the best player by far. Next three best players in that team were Rashard Lewis, Hadou Turkoglu, and Jameer Nelson. Uh, not superstars by any stretch. You know, granted this was back when when. You know, Richard Lewis was still good, but but still, like it was uh, basically a ragtag collection of people. The the one thing that I say I, I would like to point out though is, you know, he said he's not like Dwayne Wade, and I obviously certainly not in terms of constructing an offense around or anything like that. Yeah, I agree with you there. But the one thing that I do think is that he coached Wade as a rookie, and I think Drummond could make a he could make a similar leap um, from his first year to his second year in terms of impact on the game. Maybe not offensively, but just being able to dominate a game in terms of rebounding, in terms of the, the to a degree on offense. I think he's only scratching, he's barely scratching uh, his potential on offense. Um, and then anything that he's able to do, surrounded by better players, surrounded in a, an actual cohesive system, uh, start to make his presence known defensively. So I, I do think that Drummond is very, very close to becoming, you know, uh, a top three, maybe even, you know, number one center in the league within a couple of years. And I see the similarity there in terms of Wade was right on the cusp of being a superstar too. Um, obviously, they impact the game in, in very different ways. But just in terms of where they were in their in their career, uh, I, I definitely see a connection there. Right. And and don't get me wrong, I definitely think that, you know, they could build a contending team around Drummond. It's just convincing those players that Drummond is the guy that's going to help lead them to the championship. Because you got to find that right mix. And part of finding that right mix is people wanting to play for you. I think... The thing that Miami had going for him is a lot of people wanted to be a part of that, you know, Pat Riley team in Florida, in Miami. There's, like, very little downside overall. Detroit's a little harder sell. I think they've sort of been down in the dumps for long enough where they're not looked at as an elite franchise right now. So I wouldn't be surprised if it takes, you know, we're talking about 59 wins in year two for both Van Gundy's teams. I don't think that's a reasonable expectation for the Pistons, but oh, no, no. for year three, yeah, I think I think they can get there if they if they sign the right guys, keep the right guys, you know, make the right kinds of trades, things like that. Yeah, no, it's certainly not you know, fifty nine wins within two years, but you know, are maybe an eight to ten game jump? Uh, maybe it's just that the Pistons are starting from 
you know, so far low that for them to make that jump, that that's, you know, it's, it's less eye popping when you're talking about starting with 29 wins and adding 10 wins to 39, that's a little less impressive than, than jumping from, uh, you know, from the forties to fifties. To so, right. And just for context, uh, the Oh six Oh seven magic the year before Van Gundy got there, they were 40 and 42. I think that's somewhere in the range of where the Pistons will finish this year. So, you know, if they get there, then they get to around the 50 win threshold, then, then it's really about taking that next step. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, not to, I don't even want to open this can of worms because it seems like we've talked about this uh, in every single episode, but a lot Uh-oh. will depend on, on the whole, uh, what's Josh Smith's future and, and how much longer is Greg Monroe on the team. So, obviously, that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's a whole other podcast for another time. Um, you know, we, we've kind of beaten that to death. Uh, until something actually changes in that regard, but but no, I'm 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 really I think everybody who listens to me is they probably get where I'm coming from. Like it's I'm really optimistic about Van Gundy. Uh, I think this is it. Finally, feels like for the first time that there's a process in place. Um, it feels like before it was just very scattershot, very panicked moves that Dumars made, just grabbing random guys, um, certainly random coaches. <laughs> but no, I th- I think for the very first time there's an actual process in place and. You know, whatever that first step is, um, I'm I'm just very confident that the second and third step will always be better than than the one before it. So, uh, but I guess you know, it's easy to say that now in in August before there's actual games being played. Agreed, and I think you have a question for the Ask DBB segment here. You want to yes. go ahead? Yes. Yes. Okay. This uh, this comes from an email from. Um, forgive me if I am mispronouncing the name, but it comes from. Thiago Falco. Uh, the question is, my question regards to Gigi Detome, who was signed to be a premier shooter but couldn't find a shot in the few minutes he got to play. And then comes the chicken and egg thing. His shot won't fall if he doesn't play and vice versa. Anyways, shouldn't he be the perfect guy for, for Stan Van Gundy? But, don't you see, but you don't see Stan Van Gundy talking too much about him. Actually, I think he envisions Jarebko more of a shooter than Gigi. So, question. What do you think is Stan Van Gundy's plan for Luigi Detome? That is a very good question, and uh, there's a little Datome news that came out in the last couple of days where it appears that uh, Barcelona was trying to replace one of their star players, and they actually inquired to Datome and his agent about his availability. Uh, Top-level teams overseas pay a lot of money. Sometimes you can make more overseas than you can make in the NBA, so I don't think money was a factor, but uh, Datome turned them down and said he wanted to stay in the uh, NBA one more year. He has one more year left on his contract, so apparently he's uh, he's committed to working it out in the NBA, probably with the Pistons, but maybe not. So what do you think is sort of uh, his role in Detroit assuming he stays because uh, if he didn't really have a role, he probably would have looked to jump to a good opportunity in Europe when it became available. I, th- I think it, it's hard to say for sure because he played so poorly in very limited time last year, but I, he was such a good shooter before he came over. Uh, you know, he was an Italian league MVP. Um, as you mentioned in, in the, the post that you wrote about this, he was a member of the rare 50, 40, 90 club. 
you know, 50% from the field, 40% from three-point line, 90 from the free throw line. It, he's obviously a good shooter. He wasn't able to shoot very well here in the U.S., but it's not like he forgot how to shoot. I think it's more of just maybe it's his role. Maybe it's the uh, getting acquainted with the, the speed of the NBA game with, you know, a completely different set of opponents, uh, whatever it is. But it's really not rare for players coming into the NBA to struggle in their first year. Obviously, you see it with rookies. Rookies obviously get better in their second year. Uh, but you see it a lot with other international players. Uh, one of the players that you, you mentioned in uh, in your post, so I'm, I'm totally stealing your material here, but one of the players that you mentioned in your post was was Holdy Calderon. Uh, as a 24-year-old rookie in 05-06, he hit just 16% of his three-pointers. The next year, he more than doubled that to 33%, and then from then on, he's been at 42%. Um, so, I mean, that's a perfect example of a player just kind of needing to take a little bit of time to, to get his um, to get acquainted with the game um, before his his true talent is able to shine through. Um, I don't I don't think I actually said his numbers, uh, but Tatome last year from three point line just a shade under 18%. Right, but let's be honest, we're talking about a sample size of. 39 total attempts 34 total games most shooters are rhythm shooters it, there was never a chance for him to get into rhythm last year um so i i don't i don't think we even saw anything near his true talent you know whether the rest of his game um allows him to stay on the court you know i i honestly i don't have a clue what kind of defender he is uh i don't have a clue um how much he can really uh uh move aside from from three-pointers in, in offense we haven't seen him enough He's, he only played 238 minutes last year and i can remember him being on the court you know just a handful of scattered memories so i i just think he has too much of a body of work to think that uh he, he won't make significant improvements if given a chance so do you think um that he made this decision completely independent of Stan Van Gundy and the Detroit Pistons, or do you think he, I mean, it's pure speculation, so there's right. really no way of knowing, but I mean, lo logic kind of dictates that if he thought he was going to get released from the team or not going to get any minutes, he might have jumped at this chance, and he didn't. Now, maybe he's, you know, stubborn. Maybe he's had talks with Van Gundy that he's got a role going forward, or maybe he just has some sort of hints that if the Pistons did release him, he could catch on somewhere else in the NBA and, you know, give it another shot. Because one of the important factors is, assuming that Greg Monroe returns to the team, uh, that would be 16 guaranteed contracts and you have a maximum of 15 right. slots available. So somebody is getting traded or released. Now, the, you know, the depth charts are a little daunting at small forward Tatome's natural position and sort of at point guard where you'd say that uh, Will Bynum is probably lowest on the pecking order. So it's likely one of those guys gets traded or released, and, you know, it might be Datome, but do you think that this is a sign that he's he's on the team for the long haul? I think he is. Um, you know, this is all pure conjecture, but I do remember when Van Gundy was introduced, I do remember that uh, Datome was in the room there was a point in time when um, Van Gundy referenced him, pointed him out. So I know that he spent at least some time in Detroit this summer. 
So I wouldn't be surprised, especially given the system and the priority that Van Gundy has placed on shooting. He he has to be in contact uh, in contact with him about his role and, and everything like that. And I also don't think it's really fair to quite read too much into the fact that we haven't heard Van Gundy talk much about him this summer because there's only been you know only a handful of opportunities that we've heard Van Gundy talk at all, uh, and usually it's in you know in, in context of other players being introduced as free agents or, you know, being asked specific questions uh, by, by the media down at, at uh, Summer League. So I don't think it's necessarily fair to read too much into that. It could just be that, you know, no one's really asked much about the the, 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 the 10th or 11th guy on the bench. I think I, I have to imagine that he made that decision fully aware that he's going to have a chance, just at least a chance to have a, uh, an active role with the team this year. Um, one of the quotes, and this is a, a, tr- a translated quote that, that you included in your post. I'm, I'm still in all of your material, by the way. Yeah, but, it's brilliant. Go ahead. But, but, but one of the quotes, I mean, he actually said, he said, I want to play at least one more year in the NBA. This is the reason why I signed for two seasons with the Pistons, because several players have difficulty during their rookie seasons. Uh, it's great to know that one of the most important basketball teams in Europe is interested in me. They did not offer me, and we did not have any negotiation, but I talked with my agent, and we decided together to remain in the NBA. So... You know, he, he. It sounds like, or at least he's saying all the right things. But it sounds like he came into this situation um, when he signed with the Pistons, wanting that security of, you know, more than just one year. And you know, like I, like I already pointed out, like a lot of people, it takes them a little bit, a little bit of time to get adjusted. And you know, given the, given the opportunity and, and given significant minutes, I have no doubt that he'd he'd be a better shooter. I'm less sure if he'll actually be able to carve out that time because. I think playing time will be it'll be a little bit more competitive to, to earn minutes this year, um, especially if. Uh, um, well, I get you know I guess maybe there'd be some more minutes opened up if 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 Van Gundy sticks to what he's alluded to in terms of not using Josh Smith at all at the three. So I, we'll see. I, I think there's going to be some minutes there, but he'll he's going to have to earn them just like everybody else in this team. Right. So I got two things based on what you said. I just want to. Uh... I think agree with you that uh, the original question mentioned that he talks about Jarebko more than Datome and maybe he envisions more of a role. And I think that has everything to do with the fact that Jarebko is probably in the gym in Michigan in front of Stan Van Gundy's eyes and Datome is overseas playing with the Italian team. And so, you know, you can't really comment on what you haven't seen. So I wouldn't put any stock in comments about Dragko and lack of comments about Datome. And second of all, um, as far as a role this year, I agree that that might not even become available. But it's also, I mean, Datome's older, but he's also a rookie last year. This is year two. It could just be viewed as another developmental year. And, you know, if he's developed his shot, if he's worked on his body, if he looks like he's going to stick in the NBA, maybe he sticks with the Pistons in year two or after this season and the team lets go with somebody like Cartier, Martin, or they can't because he's got a two-year deal. But uh, there's you know spots opening up on the roster, so maybe he sticks with the team and resigns. Maybe he resigns somewhere else. But uh, I think even if uh, he doesn't really play much, he'll probably stick with the team and... Uh, kind of keep developing, keep trying to uh, figure out a way to become an NBA player because 
you know, there's always need for three-point shooters, and if you're 6'8", then all the better. So I think he's going to be on the team. I just don't know how much he's going to play because he's got, you know, Singler in front of him, Cron Butler in front of him, and probably Cartier Martin in front of him, and who knows how Van Gundy views uh, Jarebko's role on the team. Like you said, though, if if he can prove that he can shoot the NBA three pointer consistently, he's he can he'll stay in the NBA for as long as he wants. Uh, p- players who can shoot as well as he shot in Europe, if he can translate that even in limited minutes, he'll he'll have a long career in the NBA. Right, uh, I agree. Uh, so to wrap up this sort of uh, the first inaugural, that's redundant. But, uh, <laughs> the first ask DVD. DBB segment. Uh, just so everybody's aware, we have a post on the website explaining the whole process. You can submit questions using the hashtag AskDBB. You can also email your questions if you're not on Twitter, don't want to join Twitter, or forgot your Twitter login. So uh, we'll take questions any way we can, and we can answer them on the podcast, or we can answer them in a post. So uh, keep sending those questions in. We got a lot of good questions from the first uh request and uh thanks everybody for that and thanks to tiago ordinary joe and the gill or the gilly or whatever your pronunciation may be all right so uh the discussion about detome and his shooting ability that actually is a great segue to to our next segment um you have a post that is going to be published thursday I want to say tomorrow, but by the time this goes up, it will be Thursday. So you have a post that will be published on Thursday, Thursday morning, uh, talking about, uh, well, how about I let you talk a little bit about it? Okay, so uh, the post sort of looks at, um, there's some work being done by uh, the new metrics blog, Nylon Calculus. It uh, Ian Levy over there, he's at Hickory High on Twitter, a very smart guy, uh, does a lot of cool stuff looking at stats and one of the things he looked at was you know what are the best shots in basketball and how can we quantify what those shots are worth and then who's good at take taking those shots who's good at making those shots and obviously you know you see the the playoff teams making a lot of really smart decisions being very efficient with the ball so I sort of wanted to see where Detroit stacked up because they had such a woeful offense and uh one of the things we heard about was how nothing fit on offense and it never made sense. And then, of course, we have a bunch of new players. So what I discovered was uh, the Pistons were actually really good at taking the right kinds of shots. They were very bad and league worst at actually making shots. (laughs) So, you know, there's two ways to look at that. Hey, dummies, don't take shots you can't make. Or, good job taking those shots. Now we just you know need players that can actually convert. And so, uh, whether you think it was good that they took those kinds of shots last year, even though they couldn't make them, cough, cough, Josh Smith, uh, a lot of what was done this offseason was about getting guys that could actually convert those very efficient shots. So, uh, as you could probably guess, the best shots in basketball are the ones right at the rim the ones from the free throw line and from three-point line. And uh, 
Ian kind of looks at it from two different perspectives. There's the corner three, which we hear a lot about uh, recently, and then there's the above-the-break three. That's sort of the longest-range three-pointer before they s cut it off on the sides. Uh, and as it happens, I sort of crawled around the stats, and uh, the four players that the Pistons signed in free agency all finished in the top 25 in above-the-break threes. They were all at or above 40%. I think uh, all four of them averaged altogether 40.67% from three. And so I think that is definitely something that Van Gundy must have looked at and said, this is what we need because they're very important shots and teams take a hell of a lot of them uh, day in and day out when they're, when they're uh, playing basketball. And, you know, obviously, if you want Drummond to be more effective, if you want Monroe to be more effective, you need a guy or several guys on the perimeter kind of behind the free throw line that can make those shots. So the Pistons actually grabbed four of them in the top 25, and they, I think they might have been like four of six that were actual free agents that they could have grabbed. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really impressive. Obviously, to if you want to see all of the numbers, go to DetroitBadBoys.com and look for the post. Um, but no, just I'm looking at a, a draft of this article right now, and and this table that you put together is is really really interesting. Um, the four player and when we when we're talking about the free agents of the Pistons side, obviously we're not including Aaron Gray in this. We're talking about DJ Augustine, Cartier Martin, Jody Meeks, and Crumb Butler. Those four players all ranked in the top 25 on above the break uh, three-pointers last year. The top four last year, uh, as it happens, it was, well, the four qualified Pistons last year, as it happens, it was four. Nobody ranked higher than 95. Uh, that was Brandon Jennings with uh, averaging 34.5%. And then the other three players, KCP, Josh Smith, Kyle Singler, they were all in the 150 to 157 range. And and reminder, some people might point out, hey, Singler was good at three-pointers last year. We're talking about a very specific uh, – we're talking about not the corner three-pointer. We're talking about the above-the-break three-pointer. Um, but here's, here's what I thought was interesting, and I noticed this when I was looking at the two tables. The four players that the, the Pistons signed, uh, they attempted 831 of these three-pointers. The, the top four – players uh that not necessarily they're going to be replaced with the top four players last year uh at this uh they attempted 829 that's that's almost identical right we're talking about a difference of, of two attempts there how much better was uh like what's the golf here between 40.67 percent and 30.28 percent we're talking about 261 points like that's a significant improvement 261 points divided by 82 we're talking about over three points a game um, that is a significant improvement. Obviously, it's not going to match up one to one. All those players that were uh, that were included in the Pistons last year, they're not suddenly going away. We can't imagine that. You know, we don't know for sure that all these new players will be able to uh, exactly reproduce their success their success last year. But that said, this once again points to the fact that Van Gundy had a very methodical process involved. Uh, he sought out players. He significantly shored up a glaring weakness that the Pistons had, and he he sought out maybe not big names, maybe not very uh, eye-catching names, but he sought out players who were quietly under the radar, very good at what they do best. 
and and I think it'll be uh, I think it'll be really interesting to see how how all of this is able to translate with the with the rest of the roster and and to see how all of this comes together because if they're able to even come close to reproducing uh, the, their success that they had last year, the Pistons could literally make the jump from from being uh, the worst to to one of the best um, uh, in this particular statistic and that to me is like yet another reason why I think people are really underestimating the moves that happened this year. Yeah, I think, I mean, I was sort of surprised. I didn't really plan on exploring this above the break thing. I was really just focused on, Oh look, the Pistons actually took some really smart shots last year. If only they could make them. But you know, the more you looked at what these new players are good at, the more it filled the most obviously glaring hole because uh, like you talked about, Singler was one of the top corner three-point shooters in the NBA. Maybe that's just his niche. Maybe maybe he develops a longer range three, or maybe he just stays at that level. And, you know, having somebody camped in the corner is smart basketball. A lot of teams do it. And uh, if you haven't read the post, one of the most shocking things about the entire uh, research that I did was Kyle Singler was worse at above the break three pointers than Josh Smith was last year. Can yeah. you believe that? Yeah. Singler, it's, Singler, it's com- yeah, he converted only 25%. He had 104 attempts above the break three. That is 1.5% worse than Josh Smith's, although he had, you know, more than double the attempts. But I, I just cannot believe that Singler was that bad at that you know, the full three pointer shot. Yeah. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's mind blowing. I, I never would have suspected that, you know? And so sometimes there's a certain danger involved of, of parsing statistics too much and, and getting down to, to very specific splits and things like that. But I think this is one of those instances where you look at that and you're like, like, it's just very eye opening. It's very surprising. You know, like the corner three pointer, it is a completely different shot than than above the break three pointer. It's a shorter shot. It's usually um, not as contested. It's usually when the ball comes swinging around. Um, so it's it, it's not a completely it's not a completely different skill, but it's a different skill. It's a different shot. And if if the Pistons are able to maximize Singler's ability and and keep him shooting the shots that he's best at, I mean that's even better. I mean that that's it's. It'll be absolutely amazing if, if, you know, that if the, if the, I'm struggling to wrap my head around the Pistons being a good three pointing team. It's, it's so mind blowing to me. It's been so long since that's been the case. The words are just not there. Yeah. I know. It doesn't I, make I was sense. thinking about that earlier because, I mean, other than the, you know, godly experience of watching Jose Calderon for half a season where he converted more than half of his three pointers and then did not come back because he <laughs> tried to get Josh Smith, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but, when you think about their good three-pointers, you think about, you know, occasional good performances from Tayshaun Prince and Richard Hamilton, and nobody considers them three-point shooters. Right. Now, we're talking about the two big free agent signings, Augustin and Meeks. Uh, above the break threes, t- combined, they attempted over 560. So, you know, this is not small sample size influencing their conversion percentage this is a high volume of shots and these players can convert those shots uh and that's exactly what the pistons need 
And, you know, another thing to consider when you think about this is much like this might allow Kyle Singler to kind of fill the role of, you know, camping out at the corner uh, for an open three or, you know, looking for those opportunities cut towards the basket, which I think is another strong skill of his, is what it will allow other Pistons not to do. So, you know, uh, of the players that shot the most three-pointers last year, we're talking about Jennings, KCP, Smith, and Singler. Well, you know, Jennings shouldn't be shooting 388 threes again, although he shoots a lot of threes every year. Uh, KCP still might develop, but, you know, even if Josh Smith doesn't shoot zero three-pointers like he should, it's entirely conceivable that he, you know, shoots two-thirds less threes this year than last year. And, uh, you know, that makes a big difference in and of itself. And then you have to think about what do teams do if they're facing a team that has, you know, a Meeks and uh, Augustin at the three-point line? They got to run out at those guys, and, you know, that makes it easier for Drummond to, you know, exploit an easy matchup, and that allows uh, Greg Monroe to go to work. He's a guy that doesn't have a terrific percentage at the basket, and so maybe he needs a little more room to really maneuver because he's got that quick first step. So, you know, adding these three-point shooters isn't just about not being at the bottom of the standings from three again. It's about improving from, you know, those shots at the rim, which the Pistons took more than just about anybody last year. And so if they can increase their efficiency at the rim and at the three-point line, you know, that goes a hell of a long way. And uh, one last thing I wanted to bring up is, I think a lot of people view Cartier Martin as sort of, you know, an end-of-the-bench guy. He's signed for the minimum. It's kind of weird that they signed him on the first day of free agency. <laughs> I think people are kind of sleeping on the possibility of him getting major minutes. I mean, I view him as a major threat to get minutes in front of Jonas Drebko and uh, maybe even eat some of Kyle Singler's minutes because, you know, he plays very well. Whenever he's given an opportunity, he played very well on a, a good Atlanta team last year, especially, you know, consistently from the three-point line, which is a lot of what this team needs. So, you know, don't, don't keep thinking of Martin as the end-of-the-bench guy because I, I think that's not what Stan Van Gundy has in mind for him. I don't think you give two years to somebody who you, you think is just going to be pigeonholed for that role. Right, and, and you know, to bring it back to Detome. I think that's just yet another person that he's got to fight minutes for with, you know. He, Martin is primarily a small forward. I think Tatome is primarily a small forward. Uh, and, you know, Butler was very good at the above-the-break three. He's very good when he's just shooting three-pointers, and I think that's why he was brought here. I don't think he's, you know, going to carry the scoring load like he tried to do in Milwaukee and utterly failed at because, I mean, it's unfair to ask him to do that. Right. So, but yeah, to think that uh, the teams, you know, was able to get four of these guys who um, finished so high in a very specific skill and a very important skill, it was sort of intriguing and a little eye-opening. Where uh, hopefully it helps people understand what Van Gundy's plan is, and hopefully be you know not so underwhelmed about these signings because. Obviously, I think people are uh, 
more focused on possible trades than actual signings. And, you know, these signings were very important, especially if both Greg Monroe and Josh Smith and Brandon Jennings as well, you can add to that mix. If they're all on the team next year, then having these three-point shooters becomes so, so important. Yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. The one thing that I'm curious what will happen, will Andre Drummond... uh, once again, with the offensive rebounding leader in the NBA, he had 440 offensive rebounds last year. DeAndre Jordan, second place, 331. Will, will Jordan or will somebody else close that gap if uh, all of a sudden the Pistons are a better shooting team and, and Drummond's not there to, to clean up so much? So, yeah, I mean, I'm curious to see if, you know, just how much that'll affect. But, I mean, it's a on. good problem to consider. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to sit here and complain that they're making too many shots and they're not giving Drummond something to rebound. That's, yeah, that's just kind of silly. But, no, it was something that popped into my head. So before uh, Drummond can actually help the Pistons actually become competent, we're going to be rooting for him in the FIBA World Cup. And uh, that actually starts Saturday. And the first game is at 3.30 against Finland. Uh, USA is in Group C. So uh, everybody should be on the lookout for the games coming up, rooting for Drummond to get in during those blowouts, throw down a few dunks learn a few things uh who else does the u.s have on their schedule coming up all right well on sunday uh august 31st they're going to be playing turkey 330 once again the game's on espn uh and then then we have some some weekday viewing so you can watch this on the watch espn app uh instead of working you could uh we'll have game threads on detroit bad boys detroitbadboys.com so september 2nd usa new zealand 11:30 a.m eastern September 3rd, Dominican Republic, 3.30 uh, on ESPN, and September 4th, the Ukraine, uh, and that is at 11.30. So that uh, we're basically looking at uh, Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So that might, have, that might leave more time for Drummond if uh, Coach K wants to arrest some players there. He could get some good minutes. Yeah, I mean, they're basically cramming five games in the span of a week, so you know they're going to have to use the entire bench. Um, and then after that, we get into the whole round of 16 uh, that starts uh, September 6th and 7th and on and on. So, no, it, there's going to be some minutes going around now that I look at the schedule and how condensed it is. To be perfectly honest, um, it's I had forgotten just how condensed this was going to be. So uh, I really think that everyone's going to be playing there. Honestly, I'm just I'm glad to have some real basketball back. It's been a pretty brutal basketball this couple months here, and uh, the Tigers just aren't doing it for me. Yeah. It's too depressing. <laughs> Yeah. I'm ready to move on. That team yeah. makes me sad. Yeah, this should be a lot of fun, uh, and certainly more fun than watching uh, Michigan uh, versus Appalachian State. So, no, th- this will this will be a lot of fun during the week. And way to break you don't have fond game. memories of that matchup as uh, a U of M grad. This is the first time they've ever played, right? This is right. I, I think this is the start of a rivalry. Yeah. So yeah, be sure to tune in for that uh, on DetroitBadBoys.com. We'll have obviously full coverage for recaps. Uh, we'll have uh, game threads. Join the rest of your Detroit Bad Boys family. Uh, and then speaking of Detroit Bad Boys family, uh, we were the fan post of the week. Another segment that like we like to do here. I'm going to give a shout out to the mysterious V. Uh, longtime readers of Detroit Bad Boys, longtime commenters might be familiar. Um, we have a, a commenter named V that uh, kind of, for once, uh, opened the curtain a little bit and, and, and talked a little bit about his life, uh, did an, an, an AMA and asked me anything. Um, he's an attorney, uh, a sometime pro gambler, 
uh, a two-time finisher at the final table for World Series of Poker. Uh, we still don't know his real name, but he's an interesting fellow, and he took questions and, and basically entertained us all in the comments. So I'll save the uh, – I don't want to spoil any of the other surprises there, but go ahead and check that fan post out on the sidebar of DetroitBadBoys.com. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was an interesting guy. I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. Right, and the best part is a lot of his answers just make him even more mysterious. <laughs> Absolutely. But w- one thing I learned very quickly is that uh, we definitely have very different mindsets. I'm very gambling phobic. My wife likes to tease me because uh, I even get paranoid when I spend money on a raffle and don't win <laughs> to raise money for charity. I get very depressed when my number is not called. So oh, I, I don't think Vegas is for me. I, I had mentioned earlier in the podcast I was in Las Vegas for a work meeting last week, and the blackjack tables were not kind to me. They they were not kind. I'm too ashamed to give you guys an actual number, but it was – I took a severe beating. Uh, I I never learned my lesson. My, my, wife, <laughs> my, wife can, my, my wife can attest to that. I always think that uh, – yeah, I'm, I'm the reason why Vegas exists. People like me. And uh, another another test to see if people listen for the whole podcast. But uh, I've been to one casino in my entire life for my friend's bachelor party. It was a horrible experience, and uh, it involved g- gambling in smoky casino, uh, arguing with a stripper, and cleaning vomit of my friend out of a stretch <laughs> limousine. So. Uh, uh. That, that's a little treat for the long-time listeners, making it all the way to the end. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll close with that parting thought. So, All right. Well, this was, uh, this was fun, as always. Uh, apologize that we took a break last week. Like I said, well, I just said I was in Vegas, so I, I wasn't able to, to record the podcast. But, uh, but no, it's a lot of fun. Thanks, Sean. Thanks a lot, Matt.